Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word today, let's bow our heads together. Go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. It is alive and powerful, and it is able to sustain us through every issue in life. It informs us of the way things are as you created them, because you created all things out of your omniscience, knowing all that would transpire. And you gave us your word, knowing all things that we would face and all things that have transpired, uh, so that we would be able to face the challenges, the issues, the tests of life in a way that would honor and glorify you and would provide, and would provide a testimony for the fact that your love, your grace for us is sufficient to solve not only the greatest problem we ever faced, which is sin, but to solve the challenges and difficulties we face each and every day. So, Father, we ask that we might be strengthened and encouraged today in our study of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. Since that's extremely close to 1 John 2, we may, in review, see a few things over there just to make sure we are going in, in the right direction. One of the most important aspects of the spiritual life that we've been studying over the last several weeks is, is two things, God's love for us and our love for him and for one another. And so uh, we started this study by looking at a number of passages one of which was the command that is given to us in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, when Jesus said, I give you a new, new command that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. I keep emphasizing that because there are those from various theological traditions that think that a disciple is a, the term disciple is a synonym for a believer. And that's not true. Uh, that confuses people. I remember being confused about that before I uh, went to seminary. I would read one person and it would indicate that, uh, a believer was distinct from a disciple. All disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. And then I would read someone else, and, and they would have a different view. And so it's very important to understand the distinction that just because you are a believer doesn't mean you have grown. It just means you have been 
regenerate. You have been regenerated by putting your faith and trust in Christ. And at that instant, God made you a new creature in Christ. You are like a compared many times in Scripture to a newborn uh, baby. That is why uh, in uh, 1 Peter 2, Peter says uh, that you are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. There are those within certain theological traditions, primarily Calvinism and Reformed theology and the Lordship view. There are those that have the idea that that um, if you are truly saved, you will automatically persevere. You may stumble a few times, and you may uh, drift away from the Lord here and there, but for the most part, you are going to necessarily persevere, because if you have not, then you weren't truly saved. That makes a mockery out of 1 Peter 2, too. Why should we desire the sincere milk of the word if I'm automatically going to grow? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the scripture. Scripture says we have to grow, and that's the maturation process. And it only comes as we learn the Word of God. Again and again, from the verses that I quoted uh, just a few minutes ago, we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word that we may grow by it. It is the Word of God that, along with the Spirit of God, produce growth in us. And so we are to make this a priority each and every day to take time to read God's Word, to reflect on God's Word. At times we have a little more time, and we can go into a little more uh, study, memorizing Scripture also in terms of, of internalizing it. So this is part and parcel of the content of what Jesus taught in the upper, what is called the Upper Room Discourse. And he is teaching his disciples from the time they came together to observe the Seder meal at the beginning of John 13 through his um, high priestly prayer in John 17. In John 17, he calls upon the Father to sanctify them. That means to set them apart. That is a term that relates to our spiritual growth. Sanctify them by means of truth. Well, where are we going to get this truth? Today, nobody believes in truth. But Jesus said, your word is truth. It's absolute truth. And it is by truth that we grow spiritually. The word of God is alive and powerful because it's true. It's reality. As God defined it. As God created it. And so as Jesus was teaching his disciples in the process uh, or the course of what's in John 13, 14 uh, through 17, as they are preparing to leave from uh, from the where they had the Seder meal, from the upper room, he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. In John chapter 14, he talks about the fact that he's going to leave and he's going to send another comforter, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, who descended some uh, 40 days after his ascension. And then we have... Uh, the discussion in John chapter 15 about the importance of abiding in Christ, that not all believers abide in Christ. If, if you automatically abide in Christ, why does he give it as a command? Okay, it, it's because, and the reason I say that is there are those within the Calvinist lordship 
tradition, and there are some that follow them in that, even though that may not be their main framework, and understand abiding in Christ, abiding language to be a reference to what your eternal state, because Jesus says that we are to abide, he says, quote, abide in me. And so there are people who come along, scholars who come along, and because Paul uses the phrase in Christ, that we are new creatures in him, that that phrase in him or would be the same as what Jesus says when he says abide in me. When Paul talks about it, it's talking about our position, our legal position, our new identity in Christ that occurs at the instant of our salvation. Everyone who believes in Christ, Jew and Gentile, both are united together in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 down to 24. That's the focal point. But John doesn't use that phrase the same way. Jesus did not use that the same way. You know, the interesting thing when you read John is that John was young. He was, he was 19. He was the youngest disciple. And he was very close to the Lord. In fact, he's referred to specifically as the one whom the Lord loved. There was, there was an, a, a deep, close friendship between our Lord and and John. John is young. And like many young men, you can probably think of yourself when you were young and whatever field uh, you went into in life, there was probably someone uh, who mentored you. And you would think, well, how do I do whatever it is you were doing? How do I do this like so-and-so did it? Uh, it may be in sports. It may be in the military. It might be in uh, any field of endeavor that we tend to follow and imitate the person that is mentoring us. And so John did that. I've known of a lot of pastors in all kinds of areas who have been mentored by different uh, theologians. And they have, you can tell uh, by the way they conduct their ministry, the way they talk, especially when they're young, they haven't found their own voice yet. They sound a lot like the pastor uh, that influenced them a lot. And you can see the same thing in different fields. So John was that way. He talked like Jesus talked. So I challenge you to read John chapter 3 sometime. Start at the beginning of John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and find out where, John, where Jesus stops talking and John starts talking, where you start hearing that voice. And the same thing is true in 1 John. He uses the same vocabulary that Jesus used in, in the upper room. We talked about this the last time. So there are certain words that are used in 1 John, such as abide. That's a key word. And you can come to abide with the wrong perception and think that abiding is equivalent to being saved. Then you would have a problem. And that's what happens. Then it really does appear that we maintain our own salvation and that we're saved by works. Also, you have the phrase to know Jesus. And Jesus is quoted by John in John 14 when he talks to Philip. He says, how long have you been with me, Philip? that you don't know me. Now, Philip's a believer. It's very clear from a number of different passages that, that all of the disciples, except for Judas, were believers. 
And Judas was excluded, basically kicked out of the Seder meal by Jesus because he wasn't a believer. And Jesus said, go and do what you have to do. And Judas is going to go and betray him. And it was after he left that he is indwelt by, by Satan in order to betray the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to the Romans. But the other 11, Jesus says, are all clean, a term that refers to their uh, their salvation state. They are all clean. Their sins are paid for. They've trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. But he tells Philip, how long have you known me? So this phrase to know God, to know Jesus, is not a term that talks about getting saved or the person who is saved, but the person who is growing in that salvation. The same thing occurs with the term walking. Walking is a metaphor for how we live our life, going step by step. So whether we walk in the light indicates we're living in the light of God's Word and in light of our new position in Christ. Walking in darkness means that we're living like an unbeliever. We're making decisions. We're thinking like an unbeliever and acting like an unbeliever. And so it's important to key in on those phrases when we get into 1 John because that is the key to proper interpretation because it often sounds like what John is saying is that, okay, if you're not loving one another and you're hating your brother, you're not saved. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're not walking and you're not abiding. You're, you're not walking in the light. You're not walking like a believer. You're not living like a believer. So just that's what we covered uh, last time. So this time as we look at this, we're going to begin to see some things about God who loves. And this is all part of our study on the spiritual skills. And the three that we've been working on will be getting next week to the occupation with Christ. And then the last one on, um, not next week, but probably in the next two weeks, on occupation with Christ and then uh, the joy or inner happiness or tranquility that we have as a result of reaching a level of maturity. doesn't mean we're sinless. It's not perfectionism. We still struggle. You still have temptations. But you have these tools. You, you've mastered the spiritual skills in a way that you can use them. And that doesn't mean that there won't be times when you don't use them. Okay? I once heard somebody who'd been sitting under good Bible teaching for about 30 years and said, I don't think I'll ever reach spiritual maturity. And I commented, I said, you know that when Paul wrote the Corinthians, three years after they were saved in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, by now you ought to be spiritual, but you're still fleshly. You're still living according to the sin nature. In other words, if you are not a believer, don't think you've reached any form of spiritual maturity in 30 or 40 years, then you better go back and rethink a lot. You're probably a lot more mature than you think you are because according to Scripture, you, the expectation of some level of spiritual maturity comes comes fairly early. A lot of people reach a level of spiritual maturity in, in their late adolescence. Well, it used to be this way. Studies from uh, the late 19th century indicated that, that most Americans reached a level of emotional responsibility, uh, of emotional maturity, which is measured by their ability to handle responsibility. By the time they were 17 or 18 years of age. And then they still had maybe another 50, 60 years to live. 
So I think that a lot of Christians reach a level of maturity earlier than they think, but there are different levels of maturity to follow. Okay, just because we reach a level of maturity doesn't mean we're at the end of the game. We're just beginning, really, to play the game, as it were. So what we've learned so far is that there are two types of love the Bible talks about, a love for all mankind that we see in Leviticus 19.18, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. The neighbor may be a believer, may not be a believer, uh, may be a member of some uh, anti-Christian cult, who, who knows? But we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And the second kind is a Christian love for one another, that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And second, we've seen that this is a development of the fruit of the Spirit. It is supernaturally produced in our lives as we walk by means of the Spirit. Uh, it's not something we can just manufacture, manufacture on our own. We learn from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, that love is the sine qua non of the spiritual life. This is a Latin term that means without which nothing. It is the, I mean, if you don't have love, Paul is saying in those first three verses, no matter what else you do, uh, the absence of love indicates you're not doing it by means of the spirit. You're doing it uh, by the flesh. And so it is useless, fruitless works. And then fourth, the characteristics of love are just the opposite of self-centeredness and arrogance, which puts the believer in direct opposition to the values of the world around us as well as our own own sin nature. So we defined it this way. Love is a mental attitude. It's a way of thinking toward others which desires the best for them according to God's standards, not according to my standards. It's not what I want. It's what the Lord wants, what the Lord says is best. So that what, is that, what does that mean? What does that imply? that you have an idea of what Scripture says is best for people, including yourself. Okay, and as a result of doing it according to the loving according to the standards of God's integrity, we will think about people a certain way. We're not going to react to certain situations with a mental attitude sin first. We're going to have that thinking transformed, and we'll think and act towards them in a manner that's consistent with God's desire and standards. And that Christian love is impossible apart from a walk by the Spirit. So in our study last time, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 to 11, uh, we learned that John is writing to believers to explain the differences between the believer who is living in fellowship with, with God, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, and the believer who is not. It's not a contrast between believer and unbeliever. All the contrasts are between the believer who's walking by means of the Spirit, walking in uh, active participation with the Spirit in spiritual growth, and the believer who's walking in darkness. These phrases, abiding, walking in the light, knowing God, walking as Christ walked, are terms describing the believer who is obedient and maturing in his spiritual life and love for God. And third, the believer that is not walking in fellowship is are walking in partnership with God, the Holy Spirit, uh, by maturing. Instead, he is disobedient, walking in darkness, and he doesn't love God or his brother, a fellow fellow believer. 
So these are the issues. We concluded last time that the phrase hating his brother means the one who hates must also be a believer. Otherwise, the person he's, the believer he's hating isn't his brother. Just simple language indicates they have to be both believers. So we only have fellowship with one another if we're both walking in the light. Biblical fellowship is not just social intercourse. It's not just social involvement, going to a party together. It doesn't just happen because you get together with other believers. It's centered around Christ. It's centered around your spiritual life. Second, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. He's walking in the light. He is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Third, the one who hates his brothers living in darkness. He's acting like an unbeliever. He's walking in darkness, and he's not doing or applying the truth, which is the word of God. So those are very simple things. So we continue this study of what the Bible teaches about biblical love, and specifically now in First uh, John, and John says a lot about love. They tend to be grouped in uh, in different uh, sections. So last time we talked about First John two, verses three through eleven. Uh, eleven concluded, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that's a description of a believer not walking by by the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 12 through 14, there is a, a transitional section, which I'm not going in through because we're not doing a verse-by-verse study of 1 John. And then we have a little bit of a tra- another transitional section, but it does talk about love, and that starts with verse 15. And so this gives us a negative, what not to do. And in 1 John 2.15, we read, Do not love the world. See, part of what John is dealing with in all of this, he's dealing with love for God and love for one another. And these are intertwined in in his epistle. And so in verse 15, he now adds this new negative element, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, what does he mean by that? A lot of people get very confused about stuff like this. Uh, loving the world is not necessarily the superficial uh, actions uh, that some people uh, will identify with worldliness. You will find that they're talking about, people will say, well, you're a Christian. If you're really walking with the Spirit, you're not going to play cards. You're not going to go to movies. Well, you know, th- things have changed since the 50s. Maybe you ought not go to movies, but not because that's th- not some legalistic standard, but because today the, the message, the worldview that is promoted in most entertainment is really uh, anti-God. And I was talking about this in the 80s and uh, in terms of Disney, and people would look at me like I'd just grown a weird horn in the middle of my forehead because I would go back to some of the early things that Disney did that really did involve things uh, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice that, that touched on the occult. And, um, and I would bring connect the dots there. And look where Disney is today. 
I mean, we see that, that there, there was a worldview in the corporation that was evident even 50 years ago, but most people were buying into the fact that they were just good, fun uh, stories that were being brought to the screen. Uh, there was more to it than that, actually, because it, we see now that it reflected the world view. And that's where there's a danger with believers because it entices them to think like the world. The world is the system of the way of thinking of the world. It's the same as human viewpoint, uh, satanic viewpoint, uh, the way of man. Uh, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man. That's what we're talking about. But its end is death. So John says don't love the world or the things in the world. It's not talking about playing cards, smoking, drinking, chewing, going with girls that do things like that. That's it's it's the way of thinking. It's the thought. It's not just the content of thought. Somebody recently asked me about taking every thought cap- captive for Christ. And there's two aspects to that. One is when you look at we'll talk about this a little more in occupation with Christ. One is going to uh, Philippians chapter four. Um, verse 7, that you think on these things, if there's any virtue, if there's any good, if anything good, if there's anything of good report, etc. Think on these things. So it's transforming the content of our thinking away from that which would be mental attitude sins. And the other is to transfer the, transform the framework of our thinking, because if you are born today, you are born and you will be trained to think in a postmodern relativistic or syncretistic manner apart from Scripture. And so what has to happen is you have to take that old way of thinking, that human vo- viewpoint framework or worldview, and dismantle it point by point, brick by brick, and replace it with biblical uh, biblical truth, a biblical worldview. That's Romans 12.2, not to be conformed to the world or pressed into the mold of the way the world thinks, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father. Now, the scripture, the, your translation probably translates that love of the Father. But when you have this genitive construction in the Greek of the Father, it can mean either love from the Father or love for the Father. And so we're going to see examples of both. Context is going to tell you what it's talking about. And so here it's talking about our personal love for God the Father. Uh, So personal love for God the Father excludes love for the world. They're mutually exclusive. You're either going to be loving the world and prioritizing the world's priorities, or you're going to be loving the Father and prioritizing your biblical priorities. This goes back to 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love for the Father is perfected or matured in him. And by this we know that we're in him. That is that we're walking in fellowship, walking by means of the Spirit, walking or abiding in Christ. James 4.4 states it more forcefully. It calls those who love the world adulterers and adulteresses because they are unfaithful to the God who saved us. Uh, adulterers and adulteresses. This is what spiritual adultery is. It, it is disobedience to God. I think somebody 
uh, told me one time they thought that spiritual adultery was listening to the wrong pastor. No, spiritual adultery is, li- is listening to the wrong ultimate authority. That's spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's right there in the scriptures. You're either going to have the world as your God, as your ultimate value system, or you're going to have the Bible and God as your ultimate value system and source of authority. And it's an either-or. It's not a both-and. It's not a little bit of one and a lot of the other. Uh, at any point, we're going to be either walking by the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. We're either in love with the world and living out the world's values, or we're following God, loving Him by being obedient to His Word. So in James 4, 4, James goes on to say, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's very clear. So we come to the second grouping of these of, of love in, in 1 John, and this is going to be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 uh, through 18. So you have these, these nine verses. Um, and just as a preface, you're going to have something introduced in verses 4 through 8. I'll just read and make a couple of comments so that it orients you better. Um, verse 4 says, whoever commits sin, so that's a believer getting out of fellowship, also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, and you know that he was manifested, that is Christ was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now that's important. What does this mean, in him there is no sin? Is that positional in Christ? Well, of course not. We all sin. What did I just say about John's use of the phrase, in him or in me? It's fellowship. It's relational. So when we're in, when we are walking or abiding in Christ, there's no sin. Talk about that a little bit more in relation to Galatians 5. This is not the easiest thing to work through. That's why I'm taking a little extra time on this. Verse 6, whoever abides in him. See, John starts off talking about what Jesus says in John 15. If you abide, if he talks about those who are in him first, and then he adds the verb in the next reference, abiding in him. So John has a style where he will have a shortcut. Those in him, and you're going, what in him? We're, we're missing a verb. That's right. The next sentence, he'll supply the verb. So he sort of builds the concept that way. So he talks about, uh, in him there is no sin. Well, what do you mean in him? Verse 6 says, whoever abides in him does not sin. See, that further explains the sentence that the previous verse started with, that when we're abiding in him, uh, we don't sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, we've already studied that these words coming out of the Gospel of John indicate a, a an intimate walk with the Lord, a walking by means of fellowship and that abiding is a fellowship term. Now, we're going to see, I want to put the verse up for you, that in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and what? And you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. 
See, they're saying the same thing, that if you're walking by the Spirit, we're, we're uh, applying the word walking in the light, we can't sin. But somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, I, I walk with the Lord and I sin. Well, I'll t- explain that in a minute. So um, he goes on to say in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. This is talking about experiential righteousness that comes as a result of walking by the Spirit. Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. Now we want to read that and say, oh, that means they're not saved. They're of the devil. That's not how John uses the language. You're living like you're of the devil, okay? Um, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And when we're, as a believer, living according to our sin nature, we're living as if we're a spiritually dead person and that we're in the devil's family. That's, that's the idea. But when we confess sin, got to go back to 1 John 1, 9, it doesn't matter how horrible your sins have been, it doesn't matter how many times you committed them. It doesn't matter what horrible things are in your background. Uh, if you are a believer in Christ, the instant that you admit them or confess them, then God not only forgives you of the sins that you admit, but the other 300 sins that you forgot about are wiped clean as well. So that if you confess two or three sins that you've recently committed, everything prior to that's wiped out also. And God, Scripture says in the Old Testament, it separates our sins as far as from us as the east is from the west. So we get to verse 9. This is where we begin our passage. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now think about this. What that looks like it's saying is whoever has been regenerated, whoever's been born again, doesn't sin. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hand because I might embarrass somebody here who doesn't raise their hand, but the question is, how many people here as believers, you know you're saved, you've trusted Christ as Savior, you've been studying the Word for years, you see spiritual growth, how many of you who have who have been born again have sinned? Every hand should go up. We've all sinned. So obviously, since whoever has been born of God does not sin, John must be using this phrase about being born of God in a way that means more than just being saved and regenerate or born again. What he is saying is that the person who is living in light of their new identity as a regenerated, born-again believer doesn't sin. Who else do we see in this passage that does not sin? The one who abides in him in verse 6. So he's already said, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now in verse 9 he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. So whoever has been born of God has to be synonymous with those who are abiding in him. And I don't have time to go back and re-exegete John chapter 15, But it is very clear that the one who abides in him is a person who is getting his nourishment from Christ, uh, just like the fruit on a grapevine gets its nourishment from the the main branch. 
uh, it's talking about that intimate connection, so it's talking about fellowship. So whoever has been born of God does not sin for his, that is, God's seed abides in him. We are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but only when we're walking by the Spirit is that spiritual influence activated in our lives. And then it says, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, what we have seen is that abiding is another term for fellowship. Therefore, this is talking about something more than simply being born again. That's what I've said. So what's it talking about? The one walking in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, is not able to sin because he's been born of God. He is living as if he is born of God. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible. There's a Greek construction here that is very important. It uses a double negative. In English, a double negative becomes a positive. But in Greek, you use one word for no and the other word they have for no, and you combine that with a word in the subjunctive mood, and it's a way of saying it's impossible to do something. You will never be able to do it. And I use an illustration of this I saw one time. I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it was a group of septa or octogenarians who were at a conference, and they're walking by down the hall in front of me, and they all have walkers, and they're walking by means of their walker. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to walk with a cane or learn how to walk with, a, with crutches or walk with a walker, but you better be concentrating on each step because if you don't, what are you going to do? You're going to fall. So this metaphor, this picture that, that the Scriptures use is that we walk by the Spirit. It's a word that means step by step. We walk step by step by means of the Spirit. And if we are, therefore we're in dependence upon the Spirit. But the instant you take your eyes off of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, what happens? You begin to fall. You default to your sin nature. And then what happens? Then you sin. So while you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. But if you stop walking by the Spirit, if your eyes get distracted, you're going to be like Peter. He's walking on the water. His eyes are on Christ. And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he sees this big wave coming, and he gets distracted. And what happens? He starts to sink. The sinking is when sin happens, okay? It's not the fact that you got distracted. It will automatically lead, lead to sin. So that's what Paul is saying. So Paul and John are saying the same thing. As long as you're walking by the Spirit, we're not going to sin. But when we get our eyes off the Scripture and off the Spirit, we're going to default to the sin nature, and then we're going going to sin. When we're sinning, we're acting like a child of the devil. We're acting. We're walking in darkness. We're not walking in dependence. And for a lot of us, our experience as we're young, young in the faith, and we're growing, man, we're 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 like a bobber in the water. We're just going down and up and down and up and down and up with every wave that comes along because we haven't figured out that the idea is to stay in fellowship, to abide. That has that idea of stay or remain. And so as we grow, all of a sudden, I stayed in fellowship for three minutes. And then maybe ten minutes. 
And then you sin, then you got right back in fellowship. And so it continued. That's the process of growth. And remember, fellowship isn't a passive state. It's an active state of walking. All the other verbs are, are, are active. We're walking by the Spirit. We are actively abiding, okay? So it's the idea of fellowship is that active participation between two people who are working toward a common goal. In 1 John 3, 9, no one, who, no one born of God who is actually living like they're born of God makes a practice of sinning, but God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident. So this it manifests. What did Jesus say to his disciples? By this all men will know that, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. See, it's providing evidence. It's providing a testimony. So by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's not talking about salvation, is it? That's talking about the ones who are living like children of God and the ones who are living like children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. See, if you say, okay, what that means is you're saved or you're not saved, then you would have to understand the second half of the verse to say those who do not practice righteousness are not saved. You've reduced the gospel to works. So that's why, you know, you've got to understand not only what it is saying, but why it can't be saying what it seems like it's saying, because that would contradict everything else in the Bible. Uh, So it says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So not loving your brother, not loving one another is equivalent to not practicing righteousness. So we're talking about experiential righteousness, which is only produced when we're walking uh, by, by the Spirit. So we come to another question I've had recently. What is, how do we really walk by the Spirit? A key to understanding Galatians 5.16 is going to the end of the section in Galatians 5.25. They're translated in some passages just the same way. Okay, Galatians 5.16 says, walk by means of the Spirit. The Greek word is peripeteo, walking step by step. You get to verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, and we do, because we've been regenerated, this is Paul talking, let us also, so you can live in the Spirit and not walk by the Spirit. That's, That's the implication here. He says, but... If we live in the Spirit, let us, this is a command, also walk by the Spirit. But it's not the same word for the Spirit. This is the word stoikeo, and it's used to talk about walking in a line, single file, or walking in ranks, something like that. And so the idea here is the Holy Spirit sets down the stepping stones for us, the path that we are to walk down. How does he do that? Remember, it's the Holy Spirit who breathed out the Word of God through the writers of Scripture. The the Scripture is what gives us the path. So to walk by the Spirit, we've got to walk the path that the Spirit laid down for us. And that path that the Spirit laid down for us is the Word of God. According to um, the uh, BDAG lexicon, the word stoikeia has, has the idea to be in line with a person or thing considered as a standard for one's conduct. So what he is saying is, let us also 
uh, walk according to the standard for our conduct, which is the Word of God. And see, all these things should now be kind of coming together and becoming a little more clear uh, for you. So from these verses, we learn that the believer should love one another. That's That's a mandate for us in the spiritual life. Second, that some believers hate their brothers. They hate other Christians for one reason or another. I mean, you can have two believers who are married and they go through just a vitriolic divorce and there's just animosity and hatred and bitterness that can go on for years. And that makes it almost impossible for them to go forward in their spiritual life. They're spending all their time just confessing the same same sin of hatred over and over again. But they don't lose their salvation. They're just not experiencing the benefits of it or living or thinking like a believer should. Third point is that believers who hate their brother are not practicing, they're not doing. The word there in Greek is poieo. They are not doing righteousness. And they're not of God. They're not living like they're of God. They're living like an unbeliever. They're not walking by the Spirit. They're not living in close partnership with God, not living as a child of God. Fourth, believers who are not of God are not those who lost salvation and are thus unsaved. It's those who are not living like they're saved. They're in carnality. They're fleshly. They're living according to their sin nature. They're not living in light of their new birth, their new identity in Christ. And, you know, we got started on this whole subseries because we're talking about how the believer in Christ the, in the new man, which is the church, is supposed to live in, at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. And we saw that the new man reflects our new identity in Christ, and we are to be living that way. If we're not, we're acting like someone who's not a believer. Fifth, the one who hates his brother is walking in darkness, is not doing righteousness, is in darkness, walks in darkness, is not doing the truth, and is not maturing in his love for God. So all of that brings us to the next section, which we will get to next time in verse 14, and then on into chapter 4. This is so important. I haven't covered this in about 20 years, and so this is just kind of hitting the highlights in First John to make sure we all understand what this is talking about. And love is so critical throughout all of First John as it was in the Upper Room Discourse. It is the prime mandate for the believer to love one another as Christ has loved us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to reflect on these very difficult passages. Uh, no one denies that. There's a lot of controversy over them because of that difficulty. But when we stop and we think it through, we understand exactly what you are saying and that we are to love one another. We often get tempted and fail because we get irritated, angry, resentful, bitter towards some other believer, uh, maybe for some real or imagined uh, harm or insult, but we are to not take, uh, you know, take that seriously. We're not supposed to uh, dwell on that. We are just to put, put these things in your hands. Uh, Father, we pray for anyone who's here who's uh, listening who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, 
that they would understand that the scripture is very clear. We don't get saved because we love one another. We don't get saved because we walk in righteousness and we practice righteousness. We don't get saved for any other reason other than trusting in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's where he paid the penalty. And it is offered to us as a free gift that simply by accepting it, then we have everlasting life. It's not dependent on anything we do. It's totally dependent upon what Christ did on the cross and uh, accepting that free gift that comes from your wonderful love. And we pray that you would make that clear to any anyone uh, who needs to more clearly understand how to have everlasting life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.